Today's podcast is sponsored by 360 Works, whose plastic plugin is the fastest and easiest way to add credit card processing to your FileMaker solution or web application. Download a free demo and documentation at 360works.com slash plastic. Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. Today our guest is Jonathan Stark, who's a software consultant specializes in data solutions for creative professionals. His past clients include Staples, Turner Broadcasting, and the PGA Tour. And he's the author of the book, Web Publishing with PHP and FileMaker 9. He's a regular speaker at FileMaker Developer Conference and the editor and columnist, and editor and columnist for Advisor Magazine. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So today our topic is going to be different models of uh, billing and projects. So most everyone out there does an hourly billing, but you do value-based billing. That's right. Which is going to be great to talk about. But before we get into that, let's talk about our non-FileMaker stuff and our, okay. and our fun stuff. Let's see. There's not a ton of news going on at the moment, so let's skip to, uh, to a FileMaker. Cool. You had something cool with like a Fusion Reactor embedded web viewer mm-hmm. thing? Yeah, there's a company called Fusion, and I think they're in New Zealand, and they have a plugin called Reactor that allows you to... It's, it's crazy what it does. I guess it makes a little web server in memory and allows you to serve the contents of a field, whether it's a text field or a container field, right into a viewer without a network connection or anything. And it lets you talk back to FileMaker using JavaScript. And I recently finished a project with someone where we used Flex to build a Flash file that we just stuck in a container field and uh, served it right out of there. It's this really cool timeline Gantt chart type of thing. It's totally amazing. So I, I'm a big fan of that. I played a little bit with the Fusion Reactor and also MBS, the Monkey Bread software one, yep, which has the same, one. Some, some of the same capabilities. Mm-hmm. Fusion seemed to be better for the graphical side of it to be able to do the, like what, you, what you're doing with the Gantt chart. Mm-hmm. And then in the demo file that you get from them, you can grab on parts of the Gantt chart and change it. And it actually yep. changes uh, f- the field value in FileMaker live. Right. I think MBS is a little bit more of a um, you know, Swiss Army knife. does a lot of things. And, the, and Reactor, I'd say, is a little bit more geared to making things real simple. It does, it does more things automatically. So, you know, it's whatever one's more appropriate. But they, they both are based on the same sort of concept. So let's see, you can actually embed a Swift file in a container. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to think of what the mechanism is to then read that. So I guess it, the plugin. You just tell the just, plugin. Dang. Yep. You don't even have to, you don't have to download it. You don't have to have some weird script that, you know, takes the Swift and sticks it somewhere hidden on your hard drive or nothing. It just, just serves it right out of the container field. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see, you have a. Um, a not file maker. You and I both have a similar one, actually. Cool. Um, and then that's the USB card um, for the mobile phone network. Mm-hmm. Is, is yeah, that, I love it. What do they call those? US laptop cards or something? They gotta have a better name. Yeah, <laughs> it's I know. not Wi-Fi. It's yeah. They call it. I think the general category is called a wireless card, which is confusing because it's not Wi-Fi. Right. But I've got it. Mine is actually a USB dongle. So you just plug it in like a, it looks like a thumb drive. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, you can get on the internet anywhere, and it's fast. I mean, I use it. I'll go to Starbucks, and they've got Wi-Fi, and I don't even bother. Yep. It's it's really fast. I do I do mostly, you know, 
uh, web programming, so I'm not opening up FileMaker across the WAN or anything like that with it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it serves it, it serves my needs. I almost never go on uh, an actual Wi-Fi connection. I have the AT&T version of that, so you got the Verizon one. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually have opened FileMaker with it. It's definitely good enough to do that. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, I even have used it to download movies from the iTunes store, you know, wow. one, one plus gigabyte files. And the speed I get is about uh, 2.4 megabit. That's wow. That's about the top I've seen. And so that means it downloaded a movie in like, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a bandwidth limit? A monthly limit that you're not supposed to? No, it's exceed. unlimited. Wow. So yeah, mine has a five gig, five gig per month limit, but I never even come close to that. Oh yeah, well that would be that would be about three movies on the iTunes store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't wait. I would probably wouldn't download something like that. So, I'd so wait until I went home. Yeah, so the AT and T plan is sixty dollars a month for that, which I think is really expensive. But you know, I travel a lot, and and mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I guess it sounds like you do too, at least. So having it is it's kind of not optional if you need to travel and need to be able to use the internet from wherever you are. Right. And then it right. um, it slows down to edge speed anywhere outside of a big city, which is, you know, in Oregon, that's almost anywhere outside of Portland. You're mm -hmm. not going to get 3G because the 3G network on AT&T just isn't built up. Right. Yeah, that's that's the problem with AT&T. I've got an iPhone, and I, I assume at some point that there'll be tethering available. So I purposely got uh, Verizon for my modem so that I would probably have one or the other available wherever I was. I mean, I go in the summer. I go into the the full on woods out in Cape Cod, and I completely get a signal there with wow. Verizon. It's unbelievable. Cool. Of course, I probably shouldn't be using my laptop in the woods, but <laughs> that's the kind of guy I am. Well, I do. I did a bunch of work last summer, and we were traveling around in uh, Colorado, and I was camped for like a week in uh, this forest and. Montana in the middle of nowhere and I actually had a cell signal it was pretty cool <laughs> yeah I mean I looked on the map and there was nothing anywhere near and I was kind of amazed but it was high enough on a mountain and there was a city off in the distance and we actually could get uh, service from there wow so let's dive into our interview topic so what is value billing in a nutshell I would say value billing is the practice of setting fees based on the worth to the customer instead of the cost to the developer. And it's pretty much the way everything is sold except for professional services. Well, professional services, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, um, you get different quality of services by changing your rate. So you can you can adjust if you feel like you're you know, if you've completed some certification or if you've been doing it a long time, you can charge a higher rate. And then if the economy goes down and you really want the work, you can lower your rate in order to get projects. You know, so you've got a little bit of variability there. But it's, not a, it's definitely a very different thing than what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. So mm -hmm. is, it a, is it a fixed price for the whole project? Yes. I think that there are several problems with hourly yeah, let's start I realize there. that everyone does it. I realize that basically I, I can only think of one or two other FileMaker developers that don't bill by the hour. And I know a lot, of basically all the web developers I know bill by the hour. Yeah. But it's nuts. I, I don't understand. You know, when I was at the Moyer Group, I was the vice president for a while. And it seemed like, you know, and we did hourly billing there. 
that's when I realized how crazy it was because it was a, I think this is true of most of the firms, I could be wrong, but that they charge an hourly rate firm wide. So no matter who's working on the project, you're getting, you know, you're, you're, the customer is being charged the same amount per hour. And some people were a lot faster than other people. And usually those were the more, the more experienced developers. Who were but, also being paid a higher salary we're being paid a higher salary. And I was like, you know, if we were going to let someone go, we'd have to let go our best people because the, the ones that were getting paid less were making us more money. It was completely oh, yeah. bizarre. That is upside down, but that's, that actually goes to the flaw of just charging the same amount for everybody. I've sometimes used subcontractors and I always charge the rate to the client that I think that subcontractor is worth. It's always a lower rate because a more experienced developer, just like you say, can get stuff done much faster. That's an easy flaw to fix, you know. If they yeah, really- but but it's looking at, it's looking at the whole thing from the wrong the wrong way. Like, and the example I like to use is, I'll ask you a question: How much does a, a Coke cost? Uh, it depends upon where you buy it. <laughs> exactly. Four bucks so, at, the, at the baseball game, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And why is that? Six bucks at the movie theater. <laughs> yeah, and why do you think they're the exact same thing costs a different amount in different places? Um, because they can get away with it. No, I wouldn't it, put it like that. That's I what would the market put it, will bear. I would say that it's worth that to you, or yeah. you wouldn't buy it. Exactly, it's what the it's what the market will bear. Right. If so they, if it wasn't worth that to you, you wouldn't buy it. You know, if you if you were going to go to a convenience store and buy a Coke, you know, you might be willing to pay a dollar fifty or two dollars for a twenty ounce Coke. But if you go to Sam's Club and get a case of Coke, you're not going to pay that much. Right, exactly. Because you're in a different situation. It's worth, a di- you know, it's, if you're, and never mind if you're super thirsty, that changes everything. You're right. You know, so how much that, how much that Coke costs Coca-Cola company to make is totally irrelevant to you as a consumer. Yep. You know, speaking for myself, I don't care how much it costs them to make it. I just want it, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and I might want it more, I might want it less, but I want it. And in some cases, I may, I could imagine plenty of cases where I would pay 20 bucks for a Coke, depending on the situation, you right. know, because it's worth it to me. So, I mean, that's the way, that's the way capitalism works. That's the way our whole economy works. Mm-hmm. So to, to switch it around, to bill by the hour is, and especially considering that what you mentioned earlier, which is that you would be willing to float your rate, a different rate, for different subcontractors or different economic circumstances. Mm-hmm. It just, it's just even more bizarre to me. Isn't it the it same thing? No, it has nothing to do with how much time it takes you to do something. But let's put it another way. This is such a big topic in my mind. It touches on every part of the way I run my company. Right. So it's kind of hard to talk about it in a vacuum. Well, let's talk about the, the other things that it touches then. I mean, I get your point. I'm actually, to, to a large degree, well, first of all, I'm extremely intrigued by this topic. That's why okay. I really wanted to talk to you about it on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, and I guess we're going to get into you know, who this could work for. Those are some of the other right. questions coming up. Maybe we should kind of get through that and really kind of get into other, other things as we hit it. But sure. um, I think we understand you know, what it is, and we're getting right. into how this is such a different approach from hourly billing. Well, project-based mm-hmm. billing is kind of value-based billing. That's like a not to exceed. You say, I will do this project for $50,000 or whatever. Well, to me, that's, I don't see the difference between value billing and project billing. Yeah, it is kind of the same, except usually project billing 
is arrived at that price by saying, well, we think it's going to take this many hours, double that, and then, of course, there, it still goes over that. So project-based exactly. billing, <laughs> and most projects, certainly, certainly the one I'm working on right now, you can go over the amount of hours that you originally thought you were going to do. That's a perfect segue into talking about something else, you know, something else in my business that makes value billing make sense. Uh-huh. Early on, when I first went out on my own, I was like thinking to myself, if I'm such an expert at all of this, then how come my estimates are always wrong, which you just alluded to? How come I'm always going over estimate? So I decided to say, forget it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my money where my mouth is and take on the risk that I'm estimating correctly. Which leads me to my one of the other things about the way I run the, the business is that when I quote a project, that's it. That is the price. If it takes me two years and I thought it was going to take me two months, the customer never pays another dime. You could hear a pin drop in that silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's on, on one hand, I mean, that does put a lot of risk on you. The clients probably really like that. Mm hmm. And they to, love me, it. to me, even though in a situation like that, it makes it harder for the developer, for you, because now you've gone way over on this project, you know you're not really contributing to it. If you have to choose in your head if you're going to work on that project or the one you're going to make a bunch of money on, you have to be aware of those psychological processes in your own head and make sure that you're actually doing the work for the client that you happen to you know, estimate badly on how, many, on how much complexity there was going to be to complete it. I'm not sure I follow you on that. Well, I guess I think if I've got an older client, this is one of the things I sometimes think about in my head, even you know, just to make sure it's, I'm not falling prey to it. Mm-hmm. If I've got an older client that's paying a much lower rate, but because I just didn't want to raise their rate, and then mm-hmm. a new client that's paying my new rate that's much higher, mm-hmm. and I'm, I've got a half a day to do a bunch of work, which client am I going to choose to work on? The one that I'm getting paid a higher rate on, the one that I'm getting paid a lower rate on? Yeah. Deadlines come into play there too. But if we're going to ignore deadlines and urgency for the time being, Mm -hmm. then I would say that there's a a hidden implication in what you're saying, which is that you're losing money on the lower lower client. But if you're making killer money on both clients, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's true. So I guess what I'm sensing is that that's not really a big psychological factor. Yeah, it never comes up. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I want to be very sure to make it clear that, that a value billing model for me is way, my customers love it. It is way better for the customers. I love it. It's way better for me. And it allows me to achieve my ultimate goal. I have the exact same goal with every single project, and that's 100% customer satisfaction. As far as I'm concerned, my product, my actual product is customer satisfaction. It's not a nice to have, oh, it would be nice if I have customer satisfaction, and I would never do like some kind of scope document, one of these long, elaborate scope documents that takes weeks to put together and then do a quote on that and say, at the end of the project, then be like, oh, well, I thought it was going to do X, Y, and Z. And I say, well, nope, here's the scope document. You signed it down at the bottom. And that's all I'm going to do. <laughs> oh, man, I've seen that so many times. Yeah, it kills me. Yeah, I hate because those two. If, if you're such an expert, why are you asking the customer to define the project? They just yeah. want a goal. They have a goal in mind. They need yeah. their customer service phone calls to decrease by 50% or something like that. Right. They want to increase sales. They want their invoicing to be more accurate. They want their inventory to be more accurate by 50%. Mm-hmm. You know, do that. That's what the quote should say. The quote should say, I am going to make your customer service phone calls 
decreased by 50%. And then you can go off and do that however you want, FileMaker or not. Right. Yeah, objective-based. Yeah, there's a goal. <laughs> so what are the, some of the caveats for this approach? One we touched on already, which is that it is risky. You need to know what you're talking about. Um, you need to price yourself appropriately or you will get yourself in trouble. In fact, I was a little nervous leading up to this podcast that all these people are going to run out and try this without, you know, really <laughs> thinking it through and get whacked. You like, know, like you, can get, yeah. <laughs> you, could, you could really get killed. I, I mean, I'm not going to soft pedal that. Um, you need to price yourself accurately because everyone knows. If you've been doing FileMaker for five minutes, you know that the, the client is going to change in the middle. There's going to be some complexity that you didn't, you weren't aware of or whatever. It's going to happen. Right. I think that's actually a, a big benefit in FileMaker-based development is because it can, can so flexibly change at any stage of the development. You can change directions. If mm. you do something and you build it totally the wrong way, it's the, the cost of throwing it away and doing it again is really low compared to uh, more formal, more difficult development environments. Sure. But anyway. But, I mean, I, don't, I, I do mostly web development, and sometimes it's FileMaker backend and sometimes it's not. And, right. And that's definitely less of a rapid application development environment, and still it works, you know. I should totally knock on wood. Something's going to blow up now. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some caveats? So uh, risky was one. Um, another one I, I guess I alluded to already, which is the scope of the project has to be very high level. You want to focus on what the desired outcome is to the customer as opposed to you know what fields you're going to define or the permissions or something like that. I, I usually talk with a customer for about an hour before a project starts, and then I'll take maybe a half an hour to 45 minutes to do a quote, and that's it. That's the scope right there. So what typical size projects is this best up, uh, apply to? Good question. I would say that the size of the project is more governed by my resources than how I bill. So if, if, we're, if we're me, and it is me, I would usually, if someone came to me and they said that they had, you know, 500 employees, they have a, a, a business that has 500 employees, locations mm -hmm. all over the world, I'd probably pass on that project. It'd probably take too long and, and you know, I would have to hire people and I, it just would probably not be, it would be a drag probably. Right. If someone calls me and says that they are, you know, starting a business and they're a solo person and they don't even have FileMaker server... I would probably pass on that too because I there's not enough value, financial or otherwise, in it for them to warrant how much I would have to charge at a bare minimum. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I, I definitely pass on, uh, I'd say about 80, 70 or 80% of my leads that come in and I just take the 20% that are perfect for the size of my company. Right. Whether or not I did value billing is irrelevant. I think. Yeah, that's true. So, so that means you're not doing any you know $300,000 projects, or maybe you're charging all your customers that. I don't really know. <laughs> um, I had a six-figure deal last year, and, you know, they're, they're big deals, but they're, you know, it's a 30, 40-person company that just is going to get massive value out of what I'm doing for them. So, right. you know, it, the same exact solution delivered to a company who is, let, you know, they're number one in their industry. So the same exact solution delivered to number 10 in their industry, they couldn't afford to pay me that. And, and I suppose that's the flip side of value-based billing is you need to have the right kind of customers. The customers need to be making crazy money off of what you're doing for them. It doesn't have to be money. They, they need to be getting um, a really high perceived value. Right. 
and you know you can't like I can't work I couldn't do that you can't demand wh- whatever you think you are quote unquote worth you're not worth anything you're, the solution that you deliver is worth something to the client the goal that was achieved is worth something to the client and right. if it's only worth X to the client and you can only get one tenth of X you know you, you have to take that into consideration so you have to throw a lot of small fish back so do you know um, what other developers in the FileMaker community are using this? I guess anybody who does project base is kind of doing this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Mark Richmond at Skeleton Key does this for certain things. He has, he's got a really, uh, he has a little bit different business model than other people. He does a lot of networking stuff. And, and, uh, but I believe, that, I believe that he is a big fan of value-based. And there was someone who spoke at DevCon, I think it was last year, it might have been two years ago, and they had a kind of hybrid approach that I was intrigued by, but I found it to be maybe too confusing and, and too weird. It was like uh, their concept was that we're going to estimate that it's going to take 100 hours at $100 an hour. If we come in under estimate, we'll give you back 50% of the money for the hours we didn't work. And if we go over budget, we'll only charge you 50% for the hours over budget. Does that make sense? So there's sort of a financial incentive for the developer to, you know, to finish early because if they finish a hundred hour project in fifty hours, they're going to get paid for fifty hours they didn't work, albeit at half their rate. Right. But but to me that to me that misses the whole point. It's interesting, and I think that's better than straight hourly. But it still sets up an almost unethical relationship between the developer and the customer, which is that it's in the developer's best interest to take longer. Yeah, that's actually I mean, the biggest lever that I see in this whole thing is if you – in any hourly project, like if you think about a law firm, mm-hmm. the, the, the company doing the work is motivated to make it take longer hours sort of at some level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've never really approached it that way because I, I've always really wanted to do as much work as I could do, complete as much work as I could do, and do work for more clients – and so I'm always trying to take the least number of hours possible. Some of that also was conditioning from working at Pre-1 where the measuring stick is getting the version out the door with the features in it. Right. And so you're, you're definitely under the gun. Uh, you're definitely motivated to you know, complete things and not to draw them out. My experience is that most developers are super conscientious about trying to get things done as quickly as possible because they've got too much work to do anyway. And they just they want to get it out the door as quickly as possible and just move on to the next thing. Plus, they get bored. You know, I mean, believe me, I, I would never drag my feet on a project even when it was hourly. I think the bigger problem is that the customer it plants the seed of doubt in the customer's mind that you are maybe dragging your feet or padding your estimate or something. They have this zero control. I mean, it is night and day working with the customer's demeanor when they're working on a value-based project or an hourly project, there is no comparison. It is completely different. And value, based on a fixed cost, is awesome. I mean, what if you dropped off your car to get repaired, and they said, well, we don't really know how much it's going to be. Why don't you just leave it here, and we'll do a bunch of work, and see what happens. If you own a Porsche or a Jaguar, that's pretty much how it happens. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't give you a good feeling, I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's for sure. I just dropped my my dog is sick, and I just dropped her off the hospital. And they're like, "Well, we don't know how long it's going to take or how much it's going to cost." See, they but, obviously aren't using the software that I'm writing called SpecVet 
which is a veterinary clinic software that helps them estimate how much. <laughs> Sorry, I should tell a little, a little segue. <laughs> but the the point is, it, it gives you a horrible feeling because you. I mean, dog's a bad example because I pretty much pay whatever I had to, but uh, yeah. But the car isn't. The car is a great example because you need to know in order to make the value decision. At the point at which you need to make the decision, you need all the facts. In an estimate type of situation, you're making a decision based on nothing. It used to blow my mind. People, it still blows my mind. People call me up, new customers will call me, and the first question they'll ask, or one of the very first questions they'll ask is what my hourly rate is. Yeah. And I feel like screaming into the phone, what difference does that make? Because what they should really be asking is how much is this going to cost me? Right. Who cares how much I charge by the hour? But, but they all do. They all want to know, because I think they, they take it like a, some kind of quality indicator. The example I use is if, if you get arrested for a crime you didn't commit, are you going to hire the $200 attorney or the $400 attorney? Yeah, 400 sure. Yeah, there you go. That's why your clients are asking you what your hourly rate is, because they're talking to four other consultants. And they right, and they're trying to compare you exactly. And, they, okay, and that there's makes. this one guy that's sixty bucks an hour, and a guy, another guy that's a hundred an hour, and another guy that's three hundred an hour. Do and you, they, they can you, sort of okay, they're, they're figuring that the expensive guy is probably going to be able to do a lot more work in that hour, and the guy that's at <laughs> the low end probably doesn't have enough experience and doesn't know what he's doing, so they're not going to hire him. So they're kind of trying to decide, you know, for the particular type of project they have, and also what their ego is, right? So if you get someone who has a larger ego they're probably going to gravitate to the more expensive one because they feel like they deserve that. I don't know. I, don't right. I, I think you're right about that. But the problem is it doesn't, it still hasn't answered their question because there is absolutely yeah. no qualitative assurance. You know, the developer charges $40 or the yeah. one who charges 200 exactly. There's no, no assurance whatsoever. And nor and is all, there when you hire the $400 attorney. If there was an attorney out there that was like, it'll be $10,000, then that's that. The right. difference there, though, is that there. I think there is a slight difference there. Well, I guess not. It's a it's a trust thing. But the, I feel like the lawyer example has a lot more um, unknown involved because there's so many other factors. You know, there's a judge, jury, whatever. But but maybe not to get a divorce lawyer. They'll say five hundred bucks. Divorce is five hundred bucks, or it's a thousand bucks, or whatever. <laughs> One of my consulting clients is a divorce law firm, and I've seen I've seen much more expensive divorces than that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. But their rate, I mean, a lot of, there are a lot of, of divorce lawyers, for example, they're like, well, this is a slam dunk. I know how much it's going to be. Love is grand, but divorce is 50 grand. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, all I can tell you is that this absolutely, I would never go back to hourly billing. I, I offer hourly billing at an exorbitant rate um, to people who are in an emergency situation, you know, like their server crashed and right. it won't come back up, the file won't open, and they need, they don't have time for a quote, they don't have time for an estimate, they don't have time for anything, they need help right now. And, uh, you know, I'll jump in and do that. But that's never more than like a couple hours. Right. We haven't even mentioned the, one of the best advantages of value billing for the developers, you don't have to track your hours. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so all that time lost in just the tracking part mm -hmm. is is gone yeah I'd have you ever debated with a customer over an invoice a particular line item on an invoice not very much i try to be pretty fair about it have you ever written off hours very you rarely know, like oh i'm not going to charge him for this i'm not going to charge him for that yes yeah. yeah i do i i usually i write off hours when i feel like um i can't really hit the ground running on that particular part of it so for if mm -hmm. there's something that was a real learning curve that i should that i feel like i should have known but didn't know how to do 
Right. Like, for example, if a client wanted me to um, integrate Fusion okay. Reactor and I hadn't really worked with it that much, right. I would, you know, some part of my time of understanding and learning Fusion Reactor, a significant part of the time, and playing with it, I would not charge. And then once I actually was familiar with the thing, I'd start charging for the hour at that time. Mm-hmm. So, so really, you're, you're not even being honest to your hourly rate, really. I, I understand where you're coming from, and I did the same thing hourly. But I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that even though people bill at an hourly rate, they're kind of making up a price anyway, a final price. Right. Because a, a lot of that goes on. It, other people pad their hours. Right, when but they on, know on that, most of my projects, though, I don't give away anything. I'm sure a lot of listeners are. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of. I, I've worked with plenty of developers, and I know a lot of people eat hours. Oh yeah. Um, just to just to. Sometimes it's easier to eat the hour than it. You know, it takes less Good time to yeah. eat the hour than to argue about the invoice. It also depends upon the project, and also there's customers like one of my clients is a uh, nonprofit museum, mm-hmm. and am I going to be as as big of a stickler for them because I like what they're doing, compared to another client, you know? who uh, is a law firm and, and ruins people's lives. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I, believe me, I, I've done the hourly thing for years, and I understand the ins and outs and the, the psychological motivation for this and that and have completely cut people a break when they're a small business or whatever. But um, it's just screwy. Like I know, you're, you're, making, you're basically making it up as you go, the final price. You're just making it up. So uh, You so never much- gave them the opportunity to to make a, an informed decision at the very beginning and say, you know what, there's no way, even if we achieve this goal 100%, there's no way it's going to be worth the $50,000 this guy's going to charge me. Conversely, they could say, even if we get halfway to this goal, it'll be worth the $50,000 that this guy's trying to charge me. Right. I've seen projects where they've, they just experienced the loss of one, one flaw happened in the company that cost them you know, $10,000 because they made one little error and it was just really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And that kind of a thing happens every couple of months to the company. And they <laughs> have enough slop and enough profit that it's not a killer. But they recognize yeah. it and they really want to fix it, but they don't know how. And if mm-hmm. you can come in and say, I can put a process in that will automate that, that will prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. Now they can kind of take that and multiply it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and my, my goal is to, again, I want 100% customer satisfaction. I want these customers to love me. I want them to come back for more. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, I try and shoot for, I try, you know, get sort of a thumbnail idea of what a particular uh, solution could be worth to them. And, you know, it's kind of a black magic. You know, I might be guessing, it might be based on, I've actually, it's something, I've in the past actually just come out and said, what's your budget? You know, when, when we've been going back and forth a lot, just, just say, look, what's the budget for this? And they say $10,000 and I say, I can do it for that. And, you know, and they're, they're like, all right. So it's totally unbelievable. But, but yeah, your example is great where you say, okay, it's a great example of them saying, well, geez, if we pay this guy 5,000 bucks and he actually fixes it, he's going to save us $50,000 in the first year alone. Right. Like if, if you had, if you could invest in the stock market and get, what is it? A thousand percent return annually. Well, how much money would you put in that investment? Yeah, you put all, all of it. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Something like that's a no-brainer because yep. there's a, such a solid cost. A lot of times the value is a lot more vague. Like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you could attend all of your kids' soccer games instead of working until 9 o'clock every night? Nah, no. 
<laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have kids, and, and they don't play soccer. <laughs> but I see what you mean. Right. Life's about life, not about work. Right. Yeah, behind every business goal is a personal goal. Yeah, there you go. That's a good one. So how much less money do you make as a result of all this? <laughs> loaded, loaded question. Yeah. I coach developers, and I, I get into the real specifics of this in the coaching, so I don't want to give away the store completely. But I will say that if I quoted on a typical project at the end, I do have a pretty good idea of how many hours it took. And I will often divide the, you know, the amount of money I was paid by the hours. Right. And I can tell you that if, if people were calling me up and I gave them that hourly rate, no one would ever hire me. It's high. Right. <laughs> if you consider it hourly. But if you say, well, you know, certain things like, say, say a, a conversion. I still do a fair number of FileMaker 6 conversions. There's a lot of FileMaker 6 out there still. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people, you know, they can't stop production. And they need it to, you know, they need to switch over to 9, but they can't be down for two days for crying out loud. So a lot of times I'll do it at night or over the weekend. So those, we'll get all prepared and then say, okay, ready? On Friday night at 5, you're going to close down the system, and Monday morning you're going to open it up. It's going to be FileMaker 10. Dude, do you do it so, on a weekend, a conversion, without like, uh, mm -hmm. you don't rebuild it and spend a bunch of, oh, know, God, consolidate no. it? No. I mean, I could quote it that way, but what, what's the value to the customer? Well, if you, if you usually, on every FileMaker 6 conversion project, you kind of decide, are you going to basically rewrite it in 10? Right. Or are you going to just convert all the files and use them as individual files with scripts that call scripts that call scripts, you know, in different files? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I hate that method. So I usually consolidate and and rewrite and copy and paste crazy. code. It's much yeah. larger, but then the the way that I usually do that math is in the year or two or three following after following the conversion, all the development that you do um, is going to be so much less expensive because now you have a consolidated and and also data separation model solution. <laughs> I one hundred percent disagree with that. Okay, from the I, I see. I understand what you're saying, and I believe that it's true that you know all those things you're saying are true. But I don't think that the customer, well, in my experience, customers don't care about that value. They want it done fast and now and bulletproof. They don't want to retest the whole thing. And there's no way with FileMaker to do. You know, there's no practical way to do unit testing, automated testing of the new file. You're going to introduce new bugs. You know, they they don't want that. That's scary, especially if you've got some kind of manufacturing operation that's running like three shifts a day. Right. You know, right. you throw one bug in there and you've got big problems. So what I would, do, what I always do, I think with one exception, I always do a regular conversion. With one exception. I did one rebuild. Mm -hmm. And I can do a conversion in a weekend and ensure that the customer is not going to have any downtime. I've got a whole, you know, got the whole, believe me, I've done a million of these, so it's... Mm -hmm. I've got the whole thing planned out so that even if there is something wacky that we missed on Monday, we can roll back to the FileMaker 6. You know, they're totally, the risk is completely minimized. And to them, that's worth a ton of money. That's worth tons and tons of money. Let, let's say they've got hardware that's, you know, they need to cycle out. It's starting to die and they right. can't run FileMaker 10 on it or yeah. whatever it is. I mean, FileMaker 6 on the new hardware. You know, they, they've got this hard stop coming and it's going to be a major problem. So if, you, if they really want that, um, the value that they get from a consolidation, I would do it in a staging approach. I would, I would first do the conversion and then say, you can make the other decision later. You know, we can do it in a, in a stepwise fashion where they're, 
you know, little plateaus of stability and not just one giant delivery that needs to be like debugged and tested. Right. You know, right. so you do the conversion and then you create a new UI file and then you point it at all the other stuff and start copying and pasting. You can do modules one at a time that way. But honestly, no, customers never want that. They, I've never had a customer that, that wanted that. And again, in the coaching, I have had people that, you know, they feel really strongly about, uh, they, they really strongly agree with your stated position. And I see, you know, from a developer standpoint, yeah, I see that. But well, from you a know, value standpoint, I don't. I see, I see your point exactly. It's actually, I'm really amused by how we've used the same premises and come to totally different conclusions. But <laughs> I think what it really comes down to is this, the typical the project that we're talking about, right? For a vertical market solution, you would always want to rebuild it because you have to deploy it and debug it. And the value of the future of it is way higher than the value of the current. And for a customer who's got a manufacturing solution that someone built for them in six, and they need to mm-hmm. convert and run it in 10 today, mm-hmm. almost all the value is in the immediate version because that, that thing's not going to be evolving a great deal. It's not a huge, a living, breathing uh, database with huge new modules being added all the time like right. a typical vertical market database is, right? So you're talking about a shrink wrap? Yeah. That's a completely different situation. And that's kind of mainly what I've been working on. I would agree with that. I have that very it makes few... more for maintenance reasons that that really becomes right. that's a real win for maintenance reasons. But if you're just doing you know somebody's in-house thing, yeah. So so then the you can really sell that value of if we had a separation model consolidated system that mm-hmm. we're doing a bunch of development on, it's so much less expensive and more efficient to develop on that than on a converted solution that was running in six. You know that has forty files. I don't do any vertical market stuff. Well, actually, I've I've been sub, you know, as a subcontractor of working on vertical market apps, mm-hmm. but but with my direct to client work, it's it's all internal, highly customized solution that you could never resell. Do you think it would be reasonable for a consultant who is interested in this to try it with one project? How would you recommend people proceed if they are, mm-hmm. were more interested in this? Like I said before, I'm nervous that I'm going to put a bunch of people out of business. I definitely am the first one to admit there are a lot of factors involved here, so I'll try and run down them quickly. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do it, obviously you're going to want to do it on a small project. So something that you're extremely comfortable with. So for, for an example for me would be a conversion, which is like a no-brainer. Another sort of good project to work on would be someone that you really communicated well with. In other words, someone called you up and they, they had a really clearly defined goal that you were real comfortable uh-huh. um, achieving. You know, there wasn't a lot of that weird R&D feel to it where some people are like, well, we, you know, we kind of want to think we want to do this. We know we have a problem, but we're not sure how to right. fix it. Yeah, the kind you of know, people that when you end a meeting with, you think you know less about what they want than before the meeting. Right, yeah. right exactly. So I would stay away from that kind of person. Like somebody calls you up and they're like, oh, we need a, you know, I don't know, a calendaring solution or we need an events thing, something that you're real comfortable with. Well, here's an example. Someone called me uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they said, we've got this website. It has a form on it, and when people submit the form, it sends me an email. I want it to also create a record in a FileMaker database. I mean, it couldn't have been more slam dunk. She was clear as right. a bell. Right. And, you know, and she was a developer herself, so she knew. I knew she knew what she was talking about. Of course, about. that's impossible, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she was really, she was really, yeah, I mean, it was super clear, and I was like, mm-hmm. all right, well, you know, I could do it this way or I could do you know I could do it uh, at, at this level where I just make it work exactly the way it works now the code the, the website code was written by someone else so I wasn't willing to be responsible for their bugs 
you know, because it is possible that the website was broken, but that wasn't really, I, I didn't want to go through and, and deal with all of that and find out if the website even worked in the first place. She, I was like, are you getting the emails when someone clicks submit? She said, yes. I said, okay, well, whatever the email sends to you, that is, I'll, I'll make sure that goes into the FileMaker database. So that was one option on the quote. And then I said, I'll give you another option too, which is the, the option I would rather you pick, which is that I will take responsibility for the other guy's code and make sure that not only does it create the record in the FileMaker database, but that the overall solution actually works because she wasn't huh. happy with she wasn't happy with the web developer, huh. and okay. and that's why she called me, and and the other guy wasn't done, so there there were some unfinished things in that, and I I hated the first option because it opened up the possibility of not one hundred percent customer satisfaction. Exactly. Right. I, I could have done it and worked, and it turns out the guy's you know authorized .net code wasn't working, and okay we're getting records in FileMaker, but their their credit cards aren't getting charged. And then I, I just have to say, tough. You know, that's not my fault. I hate that. Yeah. So I said, All right, I'll give you this other option, which was significantly more expensive, where I said, I'll take responsibility. If something's broke, I'll fix it. And she opted for the, the first one because she was in a bigger hurry and, you know, she didn't have the cash for the, the, uh, the more expensive option. Right. But that's, and that's actually something common in, in all of my uh, quotes. I usually give people different. I'll give you usually a base. I'll solve this problem for X, and if you also want me to, you know, additionally do this, it'd be X plus, you know, X plus Y. If you also want me to do this, I'll do X plus Z. And what ends up happening is if you give people a couple of options in your quote instead of one bottom line, right? It gets them thinking. Well, how do I want to work with this guy instead of should I work with this guy? Right. So you want the right kind of customer. You want someone that you feel like you can work with, and if they have a really, really clearly defined goal, that's great. It's not always, not always reality, but that would be great. Another thing that you absolutely have to do is when you do value billing is you can't, I guess what you shouldn't do when you're doing value billing, is you cannot tie the payment to project completion or even milestones, in fact. Mm. So, because the project's never done. There's, I mean, at some point you realize the project's done, but there's never a date when it was completed. At least in my experience, I don't know about you. Mm, pretty much. I mean, there are there are. There's the go live day, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's not the last. But that's, that's not, not the that's not when the project really is complete, right? Right. So I like to I like to leave room for that tail of that long tail of tweaks and oh you know yeah we did testing but yeah, it turns out that there's this obscure bug in this report that we only run once a year. I'm not going to charge them again for that. Yeah. I'm not going to you know even if it wasn't a bug. I'd be like, you know what, that's, yeah, I should have thought of that, or, you know, yeah, I'll just throw that in, or whatever. So if they come and, back six months later and go, oh, yeah, we this this other report that we wanted here, and it turns out to be really complex and it's going to take you a few hours, do you, how do you approach that? It was something they never even yeah. mentioned before. No, I wouldn't do that. I would, I would, if it was something that was already there, and it's, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I guess it's sort of a judgment call, but it's the kind of stuff you already do, at, you know, when it's hourly that you would have done for free. So it's no different. But I just price the original project such that still I'm making a great margin on it, and they're completely happy. But it, it tails off really fast. People have things to do. They, they don't feel like sitting around calling you all the time. They're only going to call you when they truly have a problem. Right. So if they come back and say, yeah, we want to add these other modules on there, then you just – so for the same customer, you just do multiple different projects at each of their own value price? For customers that are real long-term customers, like the bigger companies – 
that have, I've been working with for years. I am very strict about having only one project active at a time, which keeps them on track and keeps me on track. So if they have all these bright ideas, you know, and they always do halfway through the project, they're like, oh, you know, it would be so cool if we had an advanced search feature here. That would be great. And I, and I say, I will, that's a great idea. I'll put it on the V2 list. And as soon as we're done with V1, you know, I'll quote you for all the stuff that's on the V2 list. And if they, hmm. you know, and that's never been a problem. And it gives them incentive to say, yep, V1's done. Now let's move on to V2. Yeah, so then you have a little bit of a fight of like, no, we really think that should be a V1 feature. It's never happened. I say I, was, I would say something like, well, if it was really that important, wouldn't you have thought of it a long time ago? <laughs> I said that exact same thing to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting really close to launching this project. And these mm-hmm. things are starting to come up like, well, this is a showstopper feature. It's like, well, if it's a showstopper feature, why has it never come up until now? And yeah. you know, after a year of development. <laughs> right, right. And so, if somebody... And, and I could imagine something like this happening. So one of my customers were going along in a project, and then all of a sudden they land a monster customer, 10 times bigger than all their other customers. And that customer is so huge, and they don't want to say no, and they need the money, so they make the sale to the new customer. And now yeah. this new gorilla customer needs to have a feature implemented. I would say something like, okay, we can pause this project, we can stop this project completely, and start up a new project that addresses your concerns, and then we'll go back to this one. But that has never happened. I've, I've never had to do that, but I, that was always my contingency plan. Cool. Well, we've been talking for an hour about this, and I feel like we could go on for longer, but yeah, I think we've also covered the basics. It's really intriguing. As I think about it, the one big project I'm working on right now for the state of Oregon, which is a, a public health communicable disease registry, really mm-hmm. is a value-based project. I mean, I, it was a not-to-exceed, and as the thing evolved, we actually added on other major chunks of work for a, a fixed price. But when you're working with the government, they're like, well, we found a grant with this amount of money, and here it is. It's not mm-hmm. really, I didn't get to say, yeah, I won't do it for that. I have one real corporate, corporate customer, and I, the project is just, I, I'm not happy with the way it's going because there, it's such a, like, no one cares. It's no one's money. You know, like, no one cares about the project, really. Right. And they're so out of control of the, of the way, you know, it's just, they're not in control of anything, really. It's not my favorite kind of project. I prefer, I much prefer working when I'm dealing directly with, say, the owner. Right. Or uh, the primary IT guy or something at a company who's really going to feel the benefit. Yep. You know, a, a woman said to me a couple of weeks ago, my favorite quote ever is that I completely revolutionized their business, which I love. I mean, I love that. That is my favorite. And it's never going to happen with a government client. It's never going to happen with a corporate client. So I usually just just don't take those. You know, I, I don't know if I agree with you. I actually <laughs> okay. really do feel like this one project I'm working on right now is a huge change for, for a lot of people's lives for disease tracking. Well, it's, I, not, it's not at all small. It's going to be a really big impact for the users using the thing. Well, that's good. I, I mean, mean, that's it's good gonna, to hear. It's actually going to make a, for a huge number of people who are using paper-based forms that are totally different, they're now going to have a single central Citrix FileMaker mm-hmm. implementation to do their job. It's going to hopefully make their job a lot easier and faster. So, Well, that's cool. I, I usually work with advertising and creative people, so it's not like anybody's saving lives. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, can, I feel that. That would be attractive to me. Well, you know, it could be 
They could be advertising products that save lives. <laughs> There's lots of other good things, you know. There's nothing that's all good or all bad, in my opinion. I'm yeah, like a moral certainly. continuum. <laughs> I suppose that's true. I feel like we're wrapping up, so mm-hmm. I just want to make sure that I don't throw anyone to the wolves and make sure that I hit all my caveats. Oh, one thing I'm not sure if I explicitly said, but mm-hmm. I think I mentioned it, but I want to explicitly say that it's a huge help to define what your success criteria is. So once you set the goals with the customer, you need to also say, okay, now how are we going to know when we met those goals? Whether it's something like you leaving the office at 5.30 every night or your customer service calls have decreased by 50%. But before the project starts, before, before money exchanges hands, you want to make sure that you know how everyone's going to know that it was a success. Right. Objective and measurable, I think, is what you're going for there. Yep. Even if it's something squishy like morale, you know, you need to come up with a way that, you know, how are you going to know morale's better? And the, the boss will say something like, oh, well, you know, the, the, uh, all my salespeople are just constantly, I must get 500 emails a day about how this stinks and that stinks. And they're always, you know, yelling at each other during the smoke breaks or whatever it is. You need to, you need to know what it is you're trying to solve and how you're going to know that it's been solved. Yep. A good caveat. I think that it's better for the whole industry if people adopt this. I think it's better for the customers. It's better for the developers. It, it feels so much better. You can partner with your clients. I, I think anybody who tries it uh, is really going to like it. So uh, what are your websites that people can learn more about you? JonathanStark.com is a good place. I've got links to everything from there. So it's probably That's... the best. You can follow me on, on Twitter. I'm a total Twitterholic. Are you? So, uh, are you a oh, face- yeah, Facebooker too or mostly Twitter? Yep, mostly Twitter. Facebook is more like family stuff, but... But uh, I do a, a lot of tweeting. Um, you know, I've got a blog. If I have new news or whatever, you can uh, follow the RSS feed from JonathanStark.com and get updates about this and that. Cool. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> 